Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. If you are like me and you geek out over all things psychology and human interaction, relationships with others and ourselves, and you are going to love today's episode because we dive deep into all of these topics. But before I introduce today's guest, let's talk about some updates. First of all, don't forget if you're in San Diego, my pumpkin spice seasonal smoothie is available right now at Powerhouse Pizza. And I highly recommend you get it. I'm so excited about it because I've always wanted to develop a menu item at one of my favorite restaurants, and now it's happening. So head to Powerhouse if you are in the San Diego area and try it out and tag me. Speaking of which, if you didn't already hear about November's challenge, hashtag new food November, this is a little challenge I like to run every single November just to encourage you to try out new foods. I mean, really, we should do this at all times of year, but specifically November, because alliteration. All you have to do to enter into this giveaway is try out a new food and use the hashtag, hashtag NewFoodNovember, and tag me. If it's a photo on Instagram, on your feed, make sure you tag me in the actual photo, not just the caption, or you could do an Instagram story, but make sure you tag me and use that hashtag. And that's an entry and you can enter as many times as you want. And then one lucky winner at the end of the month will receive a box of a bunch of my favorite goodies. So get excited. I love new food November, not only because I love to try new things. It's my favorite thing ever, but because I love seeing what you guys try and I find out about cool recipes you or new products and it can be a food you've eaten before but you're just trying it in a new way or it can be something completely new like I like to venture out into strange meats whatever I can get my hands on I really look for the things that are not common you know so last week I tried goat and turkey liver and suet and who knows what else I'll try out in November so I can't wait to see what new foods you try. You can always go to my website and make one of my recipes. Have you made celery fries, sloppy joes? Have you made cinnamon roasted eggplant or cinnamon roasted zucchini or my my lovely cauliflower signature recipe? There are just so many options. But I feel like it's a great time to try out new recipes because the holidays are a time when people like to cook and gather and have meals together. So try something new. And I know the holidays can be a little stressful. I know this. You're probably, you know, going to five million parties and 
trying to get your shopping done, which I highly recommend checking out the Beauty Counter Holiday sets. They're always my go-to for easy holiday shopping. And if you ever need recs, of course, you know, you can contact me and I'm happy to help you shop. And you can go to beautycounter.com slash Christina Rice to shop with me as your consultant. But all of our holiday sets are incredible. And I just love these as gifts because it takes the thinking out of it for me. And there is something for everyone. But something else that helps so much at this time of year, especially with stress reduction, is making sure that every day I take my NED full-spectrum hemp oil, often more than once a day at this time of year if I'm feeling just totally overwhelmed. As I'm sure you know, there are so many different CBD products on the market. Unfortunately, a lot of them are fakes. They are not filled with the amount of CBD they say they are or even CBD at all. And a lot of them have inflammatory ingredients and fillers. And that is why I love Ned Full Spectrum Hemp Oil. This is the highest quality hemp on the market. All of their products are made from organic, whole, natural ingredients. All are small batch and slow crafted. And they're even energetically infused with binaural beats and positive affirmations and happy vibes. And I just love that Ned only extracts from the hemp flowers as opposed to the stalks and seeds like other companies. And they only use a very gentle and slow ethanol-based extraction method done at room temperature to maintain the profile of the hemp flower and its cannabinoid content. So there are no isolates. There are so many CBD isolates out there on the market nowadays. And Ned Full Spectrum Hemp Oil is not just CBD. It is the full spectrum of cannabinoids. So it contains CBG, CBC, CBDA, CBGA, that full spectrum of cannabinoids in addition to the cannabidiol. And it's just that, that full range of phytocannabinoids plus non-GMO MCT oil. So this is the best stuff on the market. You know how picky I am when it comes to products that are going into my body. And when it comes to something that I'm putting in my body every single day, like full spectrum hemp oil, I want top quality. And if you're wondering about all of the things that the Ned products can help you with, it can help you with sleep, with insomnia, winding down and relaxing at night. It can help with anxiety, depression, PTSD. It can also be a really great anti-inflammatory and a natural pain reliever. It's even been used in the treatment of really serious chronic conditions like epilepsy, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. And because CBD works on the endocannabinoid system, it's amazing at balancing out your hormones. And Ned has recently released their Natural Cycle Collection, which is amazing for balancing out female hormones. It comes with four different products, two tinctures, the Balance and the Ease, and then the Period Soothe Salve and the Energize Roll-On. And if you are a woman and you want to balance out your hormones, make your periods easy, you definitely definitely want to check out these products. They have totally changed the game for me and so many of my clients and friends that have already hopped on the game here. So if you want to get some Ned for yourself and or hook one of your friends or family members up with a Ned product for the holidays, they would probably love you forever. You can get them the full spectrum hemp oil. You could get them the natural cycle collection, you could get them the hemp infused body butter or even some of the hemp infused lip balms. Just go to helloned.com and you can use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. Again, that's helloned.com and you can use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off.
This stuff will be very useful if you are dealing with tricky family members at this time of year, and we all know how great family dynamics are during the holidays. And you know what? I think today's guest will give you some helpful tips on how to deal with difficult people at this time of year and just in general. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Marcia Sirota, who is a board-certified psychiatrist practicing in Toronto, Canada, and she has over 25 years of experience in this field, and she specializes in health and wellness, healing trauma, unblocking creativity, and just empowering people to be their best self. She has written five books, including Back on the Market, Emotional Overeating, Be Kind, Not Nice, Women Decoded, and more. She is also the instructor of three online courses. She has a ton of great content, blogs, podcasts. Just go to marciasarotamd.com if you want to find more from her there. You will also find the Ruthless Compassion Institute, which she is the founder of on that website, which is all about promoting empowerment and self-awareness. And in today's episode, we are talking all about how to deal with difficult people, what happens when you are in emotionally or physically abusive relationships, or if you have a friend who is in one. We talk about Luke P. from The Bachelor. We talk about dating, dating in the modern world, what you should and shouldn't do on a first date, how to deal with difficult work situations and what to do about emotional eating and building confidence, how to work on your inner child, so many things. You guys are going to love this. I do just want to say I'm not totally sure what happened with the sound on this episode. We tried during this recording to start and stop and we tried a bunch of different things, but there's something weird going on with the sound, unfortunately, so I apologize in advance for that, but the content is really good and you know, the sound, sorry if it bothers you for portions of this, but it's still really good content and I wanted to make sure you guys heard it and I know most of you won't care anyways, but I just want to apologize for that. There was honestly nothing I could do. Trust me, we tried everything. Um, but I think you will still really enjoy this. Dr. Sirota is so helpful and I just love her energy. I feel like we have very, uh, similar approaches with the, uh, kind of the tough love side of things and just the realism, you know? I love some realistic advice. Just go straight for the truth. She is amazing. I really love her work and I've read almost all of her books. Highly recommend. So I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into this chat with Dr. Marcia Sirota. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been reading your books and reading your blog, and I love your content. I have so many questions for you, but for any of the listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you just tell them a little bit about you and what you do? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so um, I am a psychiatrist, and uh, about 10 years ago, I started writing much more you know, regularly, and uh, I really enjoy writing, so I write books, and I write blogs, and I write little snippets of things, and um, I also do online courses, and I have a podcast, so I have a monthly newsletter, so there's a lot of content being generated, and it's mainly because I've been in the psychotherapy world for a long time, and it's nice to be able to affect a few individuals, but with the writing and the courses and the 
podcasts and the newsletter, I get to have an impact on a much larger audience. And, and that's very gratifying. Yeah, definitely. So what would you say is your specialty? Another million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I'm very interested in a lot of things. And this is a problem for my marketing person because he says, you can't just say you like everything. Yeah. But um, I'm really one of those people. I'm very curious. I have a very wide ranging set of interests. But if I can narrow it down for the purposes of this conversation, I think I'm very, very interested in human relationships. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm very interested in in um, women and women's women's um, rights and women's health and women's empowerment. Um, I'm also very interested in trauma and the effects of trauma because I've been as a psychotherapist for many years dealing with a lot of that. And I'm very very interested in ideas of compassion, for example, self compassion and compassion in the world and how. You know, especially in times like this, uh, the thing that I think is going to make all the difference is, is compassion. So those are the things that are interesting me the most these days. Gotcha. Yeah. So like I said, I've been through a lot of your a lot of your content and I love it and I have so many things I want to cover with you. So I want to start with my the, the topic that I feel like most people just need need to have more information on. And you talk a lot about how to deal with difficult people. Yes. Um, and isn't this something that everyone <laughs> needs to deal with? Um, and also, especially like, I, I kind of want to focus for a second on family relation, like on family and work relationships. So maybe sure. we can start like diving into that. Like, if you are in a difficult, um, maybe we can start with family situations, dealing with difficult people there. I think that the first thing that we really need to touch on is the fact that so many people are in denial. It's really painful to face the truth about difficult people in your life, especially if these difficult people are in your family or in your workplace. And so people get into a state of denial or avoidance or wishful thinking, and then they're disempowered. They can't actually take care of themselves if they don't really see what's going on. So the first thing is that we have to wake up and we have to open our eyes and face the possibilities of, of what kind of people might be around us. Of course, there are lots of wonderful people around us, but there are also going to be difficult people. It's inevitable. There's always the yang for the yin, right? Mm-hmm. So the first thing is to really have your eyes open and see what's in front of you and not be in denial. And then, you know, after that, it really makes it easier to cope. And I think the next thing to do is really be in touch with what you're feeling and what you need, you know, so I always say to people, ask yourself the question, how am I feeling? What do I need? And then what do I do? Because if you see what's going on, if you tune into your feelings, and then you further check in with what you feel like you need, then the actions become pretty obvious. So what do you find most people need? Well, I think they need to take care of themselves, they need to protect themselves, and they need to extricate themselves from impossible situations. And the problem with a lot of difficult people is that they're one of the ways that they're difficult is that you can't negotiate in good faith. You know, there's a lot of people out there who might you know, give you a bit of a hard time here or there, but you can talk to them, you can negotiate, you can ask for what you need, they can respond appropriately. But the most difficult people are difficult specifically because they're not reasonable, they're not amenable to those kinds of conversations. And so you're going to be banging your head against the wall. So what most of us need when we're dealing with people like that is to feel like we have permission to walk away, 
so many times people feel like walking away is as a sign of failure, but it really isn't. Walking away is a very intelligent, emotionally intelligent move because you're taking yourself out of an impossible situation, a situation that you really can't resolve because the person is unreasonable. So that's another piece of denial. We have denial that the person is unreasonable. We think I can work it out with them. If I just express it to them in this very reasonable way myself, then they're going to respond in turn. And that's not the case. The other thing we need to face is that people aren't all like us. Some people are very different and it's very hard to understand where they're coming from, but that doesn't mean we're going to be able to change them or make them like us. So we have to face that fact. They're not going to be like us. They're not going to be reasonable. They're not going to be open to discussion and they might even use it against us. So one of the things we really need is that permission to walk away. It's not a failure. It's a strategic move. What if it's somebody that they feel like they can't walk away from? Like, what if it's your mother? Right. And or what if it's your boss? Right. So I'll start with the mother and then we can move into the workplace. But here's the thing. It depends on how old you are. If you're a kid, you can't walk away from your mother, obviously. Well, unless, you know, Children's Aid Society gets involved and they, you know, take you out of the house because of terrible circumstances. But for the most part, you know, children don't have that choice to walk away from a parent. But when you're old enough to take care of yourself, you know, old enough to stand on your own two feet, support yourself, you have to ask yourself, is the value of the relationship such that it's worth putting up with some of the difficulties? You know, you have to think of it as like a a set of scales, the positives on the one hand, the negatives on the other hand. And I really have a very firm belief that no matter what the relationship is, a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a best friend, you always have to put those pros and cons on those two sides of the scale and weigh them. And if the cons outweigh the pros, you need to walk away. And even if it's your mother, because if your mother, and I've seen this in my practice, unfortunately, if she's a very toxic person, if she's an emotional vampire, if she's emotionally abusive, if she's manipulative, if she's controlling, if she keeps bringing her drama to your doorstep, if she's making your life really difficult, really painful, um, you're better off walking away. And Some people go, how could you do that? It's your mother. But I don't have a sentimental approach to human beings. I think that each human being needs to be judged on their own merit, not by the nature of their relationship. So yes, they might be a parent, they might be a sibling, they might be a best friend, they might be a spouse, but how are they treating you? If they're treating you in a way that causes you suffering, you owe them nothing and you're free to walk away. So that's my personal philosophy. It's the philosophy of ruthless compassion. And the ruthless piece is, judge each person on their own merit. The compassion part is, okay, maybe they have reasons for it, but it doesn't matter because how is it affecting you? So even if it's your mother, if she's really making your life painful and difficult, if she's causing more suffering than, than happiness or fulfillment, you're free to walk away. I am all about that approach. I think also, you know, we it's interesting how we feel like we have we have to stick with our family, but really that was like in terms of evolution, you know, like back when we were cavemen, we had to stick with the pack and stick with the family for survival. And now we have so many other people who can play that role. Um, and it's not necessary to stay with family. And I think it's really interesting how that kind of evolutionary mismatch, I think, plays into people's feelings. For sure. And I also think that there's a very strong sort of uh, social pressure Mm -hmm. to be loyal to families but I don't think we owe 
our parents or our extended family anything. I think the relationships should be based on how people treated us. So if our parents raised us with love and nurturing and support, then we're going to naturally love them back and want to support them as they age. If they raised us with neglect or abuse or crazy making, then we're going to naturally feel very conflicted toward them and maybe not like them. And really, what you reap is what you sow. So if the parents are hurtful or neglectful, it stands to reason that the children, you know, won't want to spend time with them, or, you know, maybe none at all. So I I think that we can create our own family, we can create our family of peers, of friends, of neighbors, and we can have that kind of social support in abundance without having to uh, associate with blood relatives who happen to be hurtful or toxic to us. I agree. I'm wondering, like, what if, okay, like, let's say someone, you know, they know their mother's toxic. Let's use that example still. And so they decide to walk away, and this mother keeps calling and calling. She shows up on the doorstep like she's that type of person. Well, and and I would even add that sometimes what happens is that this whole family gets involved as well, and all the extended family are putting guilt and pressure mm-hmm. on the individual, saying you're a bad child, you're hurting your mother, it's your mother, you owe them loyalty, So they're, or the society, or their religious institutions, there's all this external pressure. But even in the absence of this external pressure, if the mother is showing up, we call that stalking. That's actually against the law, right? If it were done by an ex-boyfriend, or, or an ex-girlfriend, or a sp- ex-spouse, you know, the person would have a restraining order put on them. So why is it acceptable when we're a blood relative, right? Mm -hmm. I think that unacceptable behavior is unacceptable behavior, whoever it's done by. There are no rules in the law that says it's okay if it's your mother, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for them to do these awful things to you. So again, you know, if a person won't take no for an answer, you might need to notify the authorities and say, this person is harassing me. Could you please put a restraining order on them at, you know, at the worst, if, if you try to talk to them and they won't listen to reason, then do what you would do with anyone else who is harassing or stalking you. You know, I love my family and, you know, good family is the best thing in the world. But unfortunately, because of all the history and enmeshment and all the different kinds of things that can happen with family, bad family can be the worst thing in the world. So, With good family, they provide so much support, so much nurturing, so much unconditional acceptance. But bad family, people feel that this incredible entitlement to mistreat, exploit, and abuse their family members, and it's really awful. So, you know, I think that we have to stop being sentimental about hurtful family members and, you know, enact a little bit of tough love with them, that ruthless compassion I was talking about. Why do you think that... Sometimes family members feel entitled to be able to like be mean to other family members. I think there's a lot of hurt people out there. You know, it seems like more and more these days there's a lot of wounded people, there's a lot of people with mental health issues. And statistically, people take out their hurt and angry feelings on those whom they know. So their spouse, their children, their parents, their family members, their siblings. Uh, it's easier to mistreat people you know. You have this sense of, you know, entitlement because you share some kind of bond. And it's I know it's very distorted because the people, you know, should be given the most love and and kindness. But for wounded people, the people that they know are, you know, the brunt of all their hurt and anger and and abuse, sadly. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I'm 
I'm curious, as a psychiatrist, do you ever feel um, guilty if you influence someone to, like, quit a job or, or to cut out a family member? Well, I don't influence them that way. That's not my role. But what I do help them do is see things clearly and really help them get in touch with how they feel, what they need, and what kind of actions make sense to them. Because it's not my life, right? It's their life. And different people have different levels of tolerance for bad behavior. I have fairly low tolerance for bad behavior, but I understand that, you know, not all the people I work with have that same, you know, low tolerance. Some people have quite high tolerance to mistreatment. So, I just help them connect with what's real, with what they are feeling, what they need and what they want to do that makes sense for them. Um, but having said that, you know, I do have a lot of patients who come from quite dysfunctional backgrounds and a number of my patients have separated from their families and have done very, very well as a result. You know, they've thrived because if you take anybody out of a toxic or destructive environment, it's going to make it much better for them and, and they're going to be much more able to function in their lives in an optimal way. And as for, you know, leaving the workplace, my advice for people if they're unhappy with their job is try to line up another job if you can. Don't just, you know, jump into the void. But if the situation is really destructive, you know, you have to protect yourself and get out first. So I, I never feel guilty for advising people to protect themselves from abuse. And yes, there have been times when I have a patient who's with an abusive partner and they're very, very hurtful and maybe hurting the kids. And in those cases, I do advise them to leave, but that's for their physical safety. Yeah. So, okay. Let's, let's, since you brought that up, <laughs> why do people stay in abusive relationships, emotionally abusive and physically? I think there are a number of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that if somebody has grown up in an abusive or neglectful environment, there's a couple of factors that come into play. One is that their self-esteem as a result of their environment is very low. So they don't feel like they deserve better or they don't think that there's anything better out there for them. And the other is that hurtful behavior becomes normalized. It becomes you know, what they're used to. So if they're with, let's say, an abusive family and then they go to an abusive spouse, it might not feel that much different than what they were growing up in and so they're used to it and they just take it and plus they don't feel so deserving of anything better they don't think there's anything better out there so they just live with it the other factor that comes involved is that the typical behavior of abusers is to constantly isolate the person from any source of social support try to get them not working so they don't even have their own independent means you know so that they're not able to support themselves if they wanted to leave and they are constantly denigrating the person, putting them down, insulting them, criticizing them, making them feel worthless and useless and incapable of standing on their own two feet. And so all of that combined makes it very hard for a person. And if you think about just even a normal marriage where, you know, two people aren't getting along, it's really hard to leave a marriage. You're so emotionally invested and there's so much social pressure. You feel like a failure if you walk away from a marriage. You feel like you you know, maybe it's your fault, you didn't try hard enough. So even in, you know, in a better kind of environment, you're, you're still going to have a really hard time walking out of a marriage. But if it's abusive, and you're, you've got all those other dynamics in play, it makes it that much more difficult, sadly. Do you have any advice for if someone listening 
has a close friend or a family member that they know is in an emotionally abusive relationship um and it's like really hard to watch and that person know that you know the person knows that it's not good for them but they're still staying in it like i think that can be really hard to deal with when you're watching someone you care about stuck in this relationship like do you have any advice for that person yeah i would say that if you think your friend or family member is physically at risk or if there are if first of all if there are children at risk you have to notify the authorities mm -hmm. okay it's the it's the least you can do you have to notify the authorities and you can do an anonymous call and you can say, you know, I have to report this family, the father is or the mother is being abusive to the children, and I'm very concerned for their safety. You have to do that. You have to protect the children because they can't speak for themselves. They can't act for themselves. And then with the friend or the family member, again, if you feel like there's an imminent threat to their safety, you might want to call the police and say, so-and-so spouse has been beating on them. I'm very concerned that they're going to kill them. So maybe they'll go in and try to intervene. Other than that, there's very little that you can do. People who are in abusive situations often are full of shame and they want to hide how bad it is. Um, you know, they're very trapped. They're very overwhelmed. They feel very helpless or very guilty or responsible. So, you know, depending on how much the, the friend or the family member can tolerate witnessing the suffering, you know, either you can just be there and just be supportive or if it's too painful for you, you can say to the person, listen, you know, I feel very bad that you're in such a terrible situation, but I can't sit by and watch you be abused. So I'm going to just take a step back. And if and when you need some help, if you want some help extricating yourself, I'm here. And that's something free. Yet people are free to do because it's very painful to sit by helplessly when somebody's being hurt. So if you don't want to sit by helplessly and watch, you don't have to either. As long as, like I said, you protect the children. And if you feel like this person is at risk of being physically injured, you alert the authorities. Yeah. So I want to talk more about kind of the emotional abuse side of things and like what, what characterizes emotional abuse. Emotional abuse can be anything from little complaints like, uh, you know, the toast isn't toasted enough or it's too toasted or, you know, why did you wash the dishes that way? Or just constant, like, negative feedback, you know, this mm -hmm. kind of constant stream of negative feedback that undermines your sense of competence, your sense of confidence and your sense of self-worth. And it can escalate from there to um, teasing, but malicious teasing and picking on your appearance or your abilities or your you know, certain traits, like if you're a little forgetful, then all of a sudden you're stupid. Or if you're a little clumsy, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you know, like awkward and stupid. And, you know, like really sort of taking advantage of, of the other person's vulnerabilities and using them against the person. And emotional abuse can also be freezing the person out, you know, being very cold and withdrawn. It can be being hot and cold. So the other person doesn't know when they're going to come home to somebody nice and when they're going to come home to somebody, you know, absent. It can be, um, you know, making cutting remarks, you know, icy cold little stabs to the heart. It can be disappearing, you know, just going away and not coming back and not letting the person know what's happened, you know, just sort of checking out for hours or days on end and then showing up. It could be gaslighting, you know, making the person confused and, and feel like what's going on, right? So there are lots of different ways, sadly, to uh, abuse somebody emotionally. 
and and they all cause tremendous suffering and none of them are okay and i want to just make a point for all the listeners which is that when somebody is hurt it's not an excuse to be abusive so no matter what your childhood was what your difficulties are today you can't take out your stuff on somebody else it's simply unacceptable and I really want people to understand that because we make excuses for someone who's abusive. We go, oh, they had a bad childhood or they were drinking or, you know, they have low self-esteem. But I have lots and lots of people I've worked with over the years who had all of that and more and they're not abusive. It's a choice that people make to take out their bad mood or their bad childhood or their bad life on somebody else. And it's not acceptable. So we need to stop making excuses for emotional abuse because it's a choice that the abuser is making and they can make a better choice. Do you have any suggestions on language to use to, uh, if, if you feel like someone is emotionally or verbally abusing you, to like stand up for yourself? No, I would just walk away. If you really feel like the person is abusing you, abusers are not people who deserve to have us in their lives. And we should just walk away and be with people who are kind. I would just say, I would just actually say, okay. I hear you and walk into the other room and start making plans to leave. Just be very neutral. You don't want to inflame the situation, Mm -hmm. but as soon as you recognize abuse, you just, you know, recognize, okay, got to get out of here and get yourself out in as quick and as safe a manner as possible. Because if somebody is being abusive, it's absolutely unacceptable. And really the only response is to leave them. We should not tolerate any abuse period. A lot of powerful stuff from Dr. Marcia Sirota. But before we dive in deeper, I want to take a brief break to tell you about today's sponsor, which is one of my favorite companies in the world, Comrade Socks. I am wearing my black Comrade compression socks right now. I absolutely love these. I used to think that compression socks were only for old people or medical use and that they were really ugly and expensive and just no use for me. And I started dealing with a lot of leg swelling from standing all day or sitting all day in one position. And it was not comfortable. I would have to spend like 30 minutes with my legs up the wall every single night just to help it out a little bit. And even though I do enjoy putting my legs up the wall, I don't want to have to do that. And that's when someone suggested Comrade Compression Socks. And I looked them up and love them. They look like totally normal everyday socks. You wouldn't even think that they are compression socks. And they work so incredibly well. So I like to wear these pretty much every day when I am working because it keeps my legs energized, reduces any swelling, and just helps with the blood circulation. These are also great for post-workout, for muscle recovery, so you can wear these to the gym, and they are really going to help improve your circulation so that your muscles can recover to their full capacity. These are also great for during travel to reduce any swelling. You've probably dealt with this on flights like I have. And if you're pregnant, these are also great for preventing swelling, discomfort, and spider veins. And at this time of year, you're probably going to be wearing socks anyways, so might as well wear some that are comfy and give you actual health benefits. They're literally the world's most comfortable compression socks, and they have a padded toe and a heel cushion, as well as slide-free cuffs, so the socks stay in place all day long. And they come in a wide range of colors and styles, so they have the look of a casual sock. They also have some different patterns, like stripes and ombre. My favorite socks are the pink ombre socks, the plain white and plain black, and I've also really been liking the white and red varsity socks. I think those are really cute, especially at this time of year. You can wear them with 
boots, over your leggings, and great for working out at the gym. Plus, they have smart silver antimicrobial technology, which helps to prevent odor-causing bacteria, so your socks will stay fresher for longer. These are going to make a huge difference. Trust me, everyone needs a pair of these in their lives. You will get them and love them forever. I cannot live without them. So if you want to try out Comrade Compression Socks, then just go to ComradeSocks.com and you can use my discount code CRW for 20% off your purchase. Again, that's ComradeSocks.com, C-O-M-R-A-D-S-O-C-K-S.com and use that code CRW for 20% off your purchase. There is nothing better than cozy socks, let me tell you, especially when they really help you feel much better because you have circulation in your legs. This is why I love them. All right, now that I've told you a bit about today's sponsor, let's go ahead and hop back into this conversation with Dr. Marcia Rona. So I saw you write a few things about The Bachelorette this season. Yes. Can yes. we talk about this? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, like, would you characterize Luke P's behavior as abusive what i will say is the way it was filmed yeah. portrayed him as absolutely abusive now i don't know how it was edited or filmed and how much of it was staged or real but the way it was filmed let's say if it were a if it were a fictional piece he would be absolutely a classic abuser on so many levels okay so i would love for you to kind of like pick apart the situation for me like can we I just want an overview of your thoughts on what happened from Luke P down to Jed sure okay so what happened with Luke P was right from the very start he did what classic abusers do um I call them the prince charming so they'll sweep you off your feet right from the start and they'll proclaim their adoration for you way too soon before they know you so it can't be real but it's, it's a ploy. It's a way to hook you. It's a way to draw, draw you in. So he came in and he very quickly declared his love for this girl. He'd known her for a minute. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because she was so nervous about finding somebody um, that she, you know, fell for it. Also, you know, he had one thing in common with her, which was their shared faith. And that was important to her. So he used that as a way to um, hook her in as well. And that's what another... Another ploy for an abuser, they'll find something that they have in common and they'll capitalize on that. So right at the start, he's already, you know, getting his hooks into her. And then another thing he was doing was, would, would be that he would say one thing and he'd do another. So he would, you know, promise to the guys that he wouldn't repeat things they said and then he'd immediately go repeat, right? He'd, he'd say one thing to her and then another thing to them. He was constantly lying and then as soon as she called him on it, he was backpedaling. Mm-hmm. The other thing abusers do is they'll make these empty apologies. So he was constantly apologizing, but none of the apologies were sincere. You could see the look on his face. It didn't look contrite. It didn't look remorseful. It just looked scared. And you could see him, his brain clicking, like, how do I get myself out of this? Okay, I'll apologize. Like he had a he had a good technique to an extent, right? He would apologize and apologize. But then he would continue to do exactly the same behavior. So if somebody apologizes and then does the same thing and apologizes and does it again, obviously you got to wake up. And unfortunately, based on the circumstances and who knows why she kept him, she kept him around. But then we got to see more of that behavior. Then he was also very physically aggressive with the other men. He was very threatening. He would yell in their face, right? Like he was a bully, 
he was a liar, he was extremely controlling, right? He was like, what finally was the straw that broke the camel's back for Hannah was him trying to control her sexuality and she finally had enough. But he was all the classic signs, you know, intimidating, threatening, bullying, dishonest, uh, empty promises, empty apologies, uh, too much too soon, you know, being the knight in shining armor, but really um, quite the opposite. So all of these things. And then another thing that he did was he wouldn't take no for an answer. Typical, typical abusers, right? They, they want to be in control. They don't want you to break up with them. So if you break up with them, they simply disregard it. And they just say, oh, well, you know, you didn't mean it or she didn't mean it. She just, you know, she'll appreciate if I try harder. So they completely disrespect your boundaries. They completely disregard your limits, your no. So he showed up at the rose ceremony after she had ejected him with a ring. Mm -hmm. And she kept telling him, I'm not interested. Go home. Go away. Get lost. Scram. Beat it. And he kept staying. And she had to move the pedestal where the roses were and he kept staying and it was really really horrifying like it was like watching a car crash because his behavior was so egregious and she was so angry and so frustrated and so shocked at how badly he was behaving but that's typical typical abuser behavior not taking no for an answer so if you see a person in your life where you set a limit and they just bulldoze through it it's not because they're an ardent passionate you know, romancer, it's because they will never take no for an answer. So in any case where you don't want something, they'll just do it if they want it. And that's a really dangerous thing. And it's a, a really, you know, indicative sign that this is an abusive person that you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think also something that bothered me about his apologies was I didn't feel like, I mean, obviously he didn't seem sincere, but also he would always turn it around on her and he would say, you're misunderstanding me. Yes, exactly. And that's gaslighting. So when when a, an abuser is uh, caught doing the bad thing, they say, well, I, it didn't really go down that way. You're, you're not seeing it correctly. So they're constantly making the person doubt their reality. That's called gaslighting, right? And that's classic abusive behavior. So they destabilize the person they're with. So the person gets so confused, they lose their power because they don't know what's up and what's down. And so I wanted to um, comment on Jed as well, because you asked me about Jed. Yeah. Jed is a different kind of, you know, bad guy because he was much better. He was more tricky. He was more subtle. You know, he really came across as a very loving, very caring person. But he he came in with a big lie that he had this girl that he'd said, I love you, too. He'd just gone on this big vacation with. So he says it was a casual relationship, but, you know, her parents sent them on this beautiful vacation. He went, he said, I love you to her. So who knows what was really in his head, but certainly his actions made it look like he was in a serious relationship. Then he comes onto the show. He says initially, because he wanted to have a, you know, an opportunity for his brand, that's fine. But then he's declaring love for Hannah. And then only after they got close, did he then reveal that, you know, he had gone on initially for fame and then he fell in love. But how do we know that's the truth, right? How do we know that he's still there for fame? And then only after they got engaged did he mention the girlfriend, and only after the article came out did Hannah actually know the extent of it. So it sounds like he was only kind of doling out information when it was convenient for him or in order to avoid getting into deeper trouble. So 
This is a different kind of abusive person who's definitely emotionally abusive, but not by neglect or by, you know, uh, insulting, but by withholding information and by being completely dishonest and corrupt and, you know, going in with false pretenses and having a hidden agenda and, you know, basically cheating and lying and only coming clean if and when it suits them because they're trying to avoid consequences. So he was a pretty ugly person too, and it was very understandable why she broke up with him and why everyone was completely disgusted with him as well because it was very dirty dealing on his part. Yeah, so I think most people would agree she did the right thing in um, walking away from him as well. But do you think there's ever a situation where you know someone can withhold truth like that and then... It it like it is worth it to go back to them. Like, do you think that people can really change, or is that just a red flag? And you think usually people don't change. I would say that um, the likelihood of change is so infinitesimally small, and the likelihood of getting hurt is so enormously large that the risk is simply not worth taking. There are other people out there. Instead of giving someone who's been that horrible to you another chance to potentially hurt you. I would say cut your losses and go. You know, we, we, again, we tend to want to give these people a second, a third, or fifth chance. And like I've been in practice for a long time, and I have to say I've never seen it work out, not once. Not to say that it couldn't at some point, but I think the likelihood is so tiny that, that the person will change. The likelihood is so high that they'll hurt you again because this is part of who they are. It's, it's their character, right? They're just that kind of person. I think that you have far more to lose than you have to gain by sticking around. I think if we stopped giving hurtful people second chances, it would do two things. One, it would protect us. And two, it would teach these people a lesson that they can't get away with their bad behavior. And maybe then they would have a little bit more incentive to change. If they got their wrists slapped a few times, if nothing else, behaviorally, they might be motivated to change, if not in terms of their character. Yeah. So I'm not sure what your typical patient demographic is like, but I'm wondering if you notice a difference in terms of like dating relationships between kind of like this younger generation, like um, 20s now versus like people who are 40s, 50s. Um, You know, my demographic is pretty wide. I do see mostly women, but they're from, you know, really all ages. And, uh, I do a lot of consults as well, psychiatric assessments, and that's definitely men and women of all ages. And I don't know if it's if it's changed. I think it's changed for everybody. I think with the advent of online dating and the ease at which somebody can find a sex partner, it's really shifted things very dramatically. I think just the whole internet and social media has shifted dating so much. And my in my practice, my complaints that I hear from from people over and over again, their complaints, not my own, their complaints that I hear are that people are just wanting to use each other. You know, they just want to use me for sex, they're saying. They just want to use me for money. Um, you know, and people lie. They lie constantly and they think that the lies won't be caught, but of course, very quickly they are. So people come to me and they're very disappointed because, you know, either somebody wants to take advantage of them financially or somebody wants to take advantage of them sexually. And people are are seen more as commodities rather than, you know, fascinating and delightful human beings that the other person wants to actually get to know and spend time with and cherish. So 
it's um, it seems like it's a little bit rough out there these days. Yeah, well, I think also there's an attitude for a lot of people where it's like there are so many options mm-hmm. that, you know, even if they're not necessarily taking advantage of someone yeah. sexually or financially, it's like getting bored and then moving on. Yeah, I think we all have a little bit of ADD based on all this social media and technology that we have. So it's like next, next, next. And it's like this this fantasy that there's always something better out there. So there's like a, a more interesting, more fascinating, more attractive person on the next swipe or the next click. And that's unfortunate because it makes it very difficult for a person to invest any time or energy in getting to know this one person and discovering if there's something meaningful. And I think that people aren't looking for meaningful. They're looking for excitement. They're looking for superficial thrills. And superficial thrills may be fun in the moment, but they're not terribly satisfying. And so people just go from thrill to thrill as opposed to staying and investing and going deep and finding something really meaningful and, and, and satisfying. Yeah, so, I mean, what do you think about online dating? Like, do you think that it has its place, or do you think people should avoid it? No, I think, I certainly hear of a lot of relationships, you know, happening on it, a lot of marriages happening, but I also think there's a real dark side to it, and I think you have to approach with caution, like anything online, like anything using technology, you always have to approach with caution. There's tons of catfishing, there's people who are pretending to be something that they're not and asking you for money. I think if anybody is asking you for anything before you've really gotten to know them, you know, assume that they are not an honorable or honest person. Um, and I think that you also have to really, you know, put yourself in a position of safety. You know, when you're meeting somebody, don't meet them in a way that's going to compromise your safety and uh, take your time. You know, there's no reason to rush into things. It, it's very disappointing if you have a, an intimate encounter with somebody on the first date and you were looking for a relationship and then the person, you know, disappears. So if you are looking for a relationship, you know, don't get physically intimate before you become emotionally in- intimate. You know, get to know the person, get to trust the person. And then, you know, there's more chance that even if it doesn't work out, you're not going to be devastated. So just you have to do it smartly, right? Yeah. So you talk a bit about, um, like, why you should be be on the lookout for like fast feelings like mm-hmm. like why why and I, I feel like my friends often debate this like is it better to have a, a slow growing burn or just like straight off the bat a spark you know um yeah. that we hear about in the movies so why do you generally say like you know not not to look for that initial spark well a lot of the time, that initial spark has very little to do with real, genuine connection, and it has more to do with either the fact that this person reminds you of somebody familiar from your past who could possibly have been abusive, right? So, like, if you're, you know, maybe they're exciting because they remind you of your abusive father, and, you know, you have, like, a little bit of dopamine that gets released in your brain because it is a familiar, you know, kind of sensation. So that's not a good thing. So a lot of times when you have that infatuation, it's, you know, because they're, they're reminding you of somebody hurtful from your past or because you have a shared pathology, like you both are neurotic in some way. So if you have like, if you resonate on that level of you're both insecure or you're both, you know, have some anger issues, again, that's not so great. You don't necessarily want to have somebody where the first, you know, attraction is the fact that you both have issues. So I would say as long as there's nothing repulsive around the person, you know, like unless you, you know, if you don't find them unattractive or extremely boring or unpleasant like if they seem 
pleasant, nice, and, you know, like interesting, like a friend, like a new friend that you'd want to get to know better, then I would say pursue it because just like with a friend, you know, you think, oh, you know, he seems like a nice person, and then they end up being your bosom buddy, like you didn't realize they would become your best friend. This person who, you know, they seem really nice and fun and interesting, you know, they might become the love of your life. Obviously, you don't want to give a, ch a second chance to someone who's, you know, unappealing, unattractive, boring, icky, whatever, right? But if they're, if they seem like somebody you'd want to be friends with, maybe even somebody who you'd want to be good friends with, then there's a really good chance that you'll be able to develop a meaningful and long-term relationship with them. What do you think about in terms of compatibility, like being more similar to someone versus opposites attract? I think there's a case to be made for both. It just depends on, you know, in the moment, what, what clicks for you. Sometimes somebody who has who's complimentary, who has skills and, and strengths in areas that you don't, is very fun and exciting. And then sometimes it's really nice to have the comfort of the familiarity. So it just depends on, you know, in that moment. And you can end up being with people who are very different than you, and you can end up being with people who are very similar to you as well, and both can be excellent relationships. I think it's more about whether, you know, you guys have something real, you treat each other well, you make each other happy, you bring out the best in each other, and then it doesn't really matter whether your opposites are similar as long as those things are in place. Yeah, and why do you say not to share too much on the first date? Right. So I say that intensity is the death of intimacy. You know, intimacy needs to grow. You, you know, if you just overshare, it's just an information dump. And there's no context. Like, you know, we've, we've lost our sense of privacy and we've lost our sense of appropriateness of what we're supposed to share with each other with everybody being on on social media you know you know flushing the toilet on facebook you know it's like so much overexposure that we really lost perspective about what should be personal and private and what should be shared with the public or even with a a, a new friend potential potential friend or, or partner i think we need to you know kind of get back to having some privacy having some boundaries and then gradually sharing more and more with the person as we get to know them if we just dump all this d data it's not closeness it's not a relationship we have facts but there's no context for the information so we can't sort of hold it in a way that's you know cherishing like when when a friend opens up about something to a friend their friend appreciates it and values it and sees sees the other person in a deeper context and and gets to know them in in a better way and it makes the relationship richer so you know, information dumps have nothing to do with enriching a relationship. You know, they have to go in a gradual process. We've got to start with the small talk and then, you know, talk a little bit more about, you know, sort of the person's history and then get into the hopes and dreams and then get into the deeper philosophical things. And that's how you gradually get to know somebody. And that's real intimacy, which can be meaningful and lasting. Yeah. Well, that's interesting how you say that, um go from small talk to history to hopes and dreams why why history before hopes and dreams well general history you don't have to go into all the gory detail history okay. that comes later yeah but just you know i grew up here my family did this you know i went to school there i did work here i these are you know the things that i do for fun that kind of history i'm not talking about you know the trauma history or you know the, the skeletons in the closet i'm just talking about general history Okay, yeah. gotcha. The, the, the sort of structure. Okay. The framework. Yeah. Um, so I want to shift gears for a second and talk about 
being nice, not kind. So what is the difference between being nice and being kind? In the way I see it, being nice is being a people pleaser. It's, it's thinking about what you can do to make the other person like you because you're invested in how the other person sees you and you feel better about yourself if the other person approves of you or, or thinks you're good. Whereas being kind is your heart is full of love and compassion, you care about others, and you want to be a caring and giving person out of the goodness of your heart. However, a kind person also thinks about themselves. So as a kind person, you're not going to do something that's going to hurt you or compromise you. Whereas the nice person could do something that's bad for them because they're so invested in the other person liking and approving of them. And where does that come from? What makes people, you know, like what's the difference between the type of personality of who's nice and who's kind? I think that the nice person comes from a background where they didn't get enough love or nurturing or validation. And so they're now looking to the people in their current life for those kinds of things. And they think that the way to do it is to purchase it by being nice. So they say, you know, obviously it's not out loud, but they're saying in their mind, okay, if I do this for you, will you like me? If I do this for you, will you approve of me? If I do this for you, will you validate me? Um, so it's coming as a way of uh, compensating for what's missing, what was missing in the past and what they still feel like is missing today. And really what they need is to love themselves accept themselves, nurture themselves, validate themselves, because it has to come from within. Whereas the kind person probably got enough love and validation, or if they didn't, they took responsibility and they, they got, you know, together, they got their act together and they started to love and nurture and validate themselves so that when they are doing for others, it's out of the goodness of their heart, it's out of true generosity and not with some expectation of getting something in return. Because the thing about the nice person is that they're really... They have a, an ulterior motive. They're giving to get, whereas the kind person is just giving because it feels good to give. And the kind person has good boundaries. They know when to say no. They know when to stop. They're not going to do anything to hurt themselves, whereas the nice person will just keep going and hurt themselves and exhaust themselves and get burnt out, which I've seen a lot in my practice um, because they're they're so desperate for the approval and, and the, the validation from others. Yeah, I think the topic of boundaries is really important and, like, also this idea of, like, what we owe people, which we kind of talked about before, but, you know, growing up they would always say, treat people the way you would want to be treated, but does everybody deserve that? Well, it's an interesting little parable, treat people the way you want to be treated, because, no, people, not everyone will treat you the way you treat them. Like, you can be very kind and generous and loving to somebody and they can be a big jerk and treat you really badly so you need to watch how people respond to you all the time that's why I say have your eyes open don't be in denial because if you make a new friend let's say and you're really good to them and the person just takes advantage that's not a true friend if you are dating somebody and you're really good to them you're really kind and they are you know um, dishonest or abusive you know obviously they're not treating you as, as you've treated them. So you need to see that and you need to walk away. So I don't think that that line is really very helpful because it's it's a line that assumes that everyone will treat you the way you're treating them, and that's not the case. Yeah, so I, I think I realize now we didn't fully cover the, the workplace scenario, and I think this relates. Mm -hmm. So maybe go back for a second about like if somebody is in a work situation and their boss is not being kind to them, 
um, or coworker? Like, how do you navigate that, and how how do you interact with them? I think that what that's one of the most difficult situations because you know our workplace is where we get so much personal satisfaction. And it's also, you know, our means of survival, right? For many of us, you know, not a lot of people have somebody else to rely on when we're grown up. So, you know, even if we have a spouse who makes a living, you know, the income from the one spouse won't necessarily be enough. So we really, we need our jobs. So it's very hard when we have an abusive or, or micromanaging or super controlling or crazy making boss or colleague because, it, you know, it's very awkward to have to find another job. But, you know, there are, and it's, it's not the same negotiating in the workplace because these people don't love you. The thing we need to recognize is that the workplace is not our friends. It's not our family members. There's no love there. You know, people are going to work. They're doing their job. People might appreciate you for doing a good job. They might value you for, you know, being a good employee or a, bit, a good colleague. But they don't love you. And you cannot assume that people are going to respond to you in the way that people who love you will respond to you. So you're really, you know, it's not a, a, a nurturing environment. And you have to be very strategic. You know, with friends and family and loved ones, you can be maybe a little bit more vulnerable. But in the workplace, you have to be strategic. You really have to think very carefully before you act because you don't want to make things worse. You don't want to confront your boss, for example, because for most, most of the times, Bosses don't take very kindly to an employee confronting them. So with a boss, you have to figure out strategic ways to deal with them. And if you can't, maybe you have to get yourself transferred or you have to look for another job and then, you know, get yourself out. Um, with a colleague, again, you have to be very strategic because they can make your life very difficult if they discover that you're unhappy with the way they're behaving and if you're complaining. So you have to really be very careful to protect yourself at all times, to plan ahead, to cover your bases, so document everything, send yourself emails of conversations, record phone calls, do whatever you need to do in a very subtle and discreet way to protect yourself because, uh, you know, you never know what your boss or your colleagues are capable of. They're not your friends and even more than your loved ones, who knows what they could do. And, you know, this is your livelihood. This is your professional reputation. So you really need to be very careful, very cautious, very strategic, very thought out when you're dealing with difficult people in the workplace. And, you know, I've heard a lot of very unfortunate stories about people, you know, who were mistreated in the workplace. And it, it often ends very, very tragically for the individual and not through any fault of their own, but just because they were not as strategic as they might have been. For people who are in a difficult work situation, do you think that, like, and they know it's a toxic environment, like, should the goal be to try and figure out a way to make it work and make it better or should the goal be like figure this out now while I'm getting things in place to leave well I think it depends on, the, on the, each individual scenario like I think we got to trust our own judgment right and we have to kind of think hmm, let's look at this this scenario in, in its individual case and say to ourselves is this something that I can live with and work with and you know strategize around or is this something I need to like plan my escape from in a very smart and strategic way, right? It's, I think it's always a case-by-case -case scenario because they're all different, right? And there's different kinds of bosses, different kinds of work environments. And, you know, what I will say, though, is what I have found over the years being a psychotherapist is that most of the time management will side with the higher-ups because it's easier to replace 
someone in the lower position than it is to replace someone in the higher position. So if you're dealing with a difficult boss, it's much more likely that they'll side with the boss. So if you really can't manage the situation, then the best thing to do is to find another position. And sometimes if you're dealing with a difficult colleague, unfortunately, the thing that difficult people often are really good at is being manipulative and tricking people into thinking that they're great. So you might have this really awful, reprehensible colleague who's really making your life difficult, but the management might think they're fabulous and just love them and not believe you if you complain about them. So you also have to really look at that and see if you know management is more likely to side with them over you. And again, in that case, maybe the best bet is just to go because you know you just can't win. Yeah. So, I mean, that can all also do a number on someone's self-esteem. And you talk a bit about like the cycle of low self-esteem and building self-esteem. So what are some actionable things people can do to start building their self-esteem? Well, the first thing is to get out of environments where people are making you feel like garbage, <laughs> you know, whether it's a personal relationship or a professional relationship. If you're in a toxic environment and people are constantly insulting you, criticizing you, undermining your confidence, making you doubt yourself, making you confused, obviously your self-esteem is going to you know, go downhill really fast. So you shouldn't be in environments that make you feel bad about yourself. You know, good relationships, all, like I said before, make you feel happy and make you feel good about yourself and bring up the best in you. So we should really surround ourselves by people, whether in our personal or our professional life, who do that for us. And then we can work on self-love, right? We can do self-nurturing, self-affirmation, self-validation. We can take care of ourselves by, you know, taking care of our emotional and physical well-being. And all those things will make us feel good. And another thing that will really make us feel good is to be a kind, compassionate, and loving person with others. Because when we do good for others, it really makes us feel great about ourselves. So if we get a little less selfish and a little less self-involved, and we're generous and caring and compassionate with others, boy, does that boost our self-worth. Yeah. I think this also kind of relates to, in, in your book you talk about um, overeating. And a lot of the listeners I know struggle with that. Um, and what do you see as the most common, like, purposes behind overeating? I think overeating is just a, a dysfunctional coping strategy for people who are looking to heal emotional wounds and to meet emotional needs. And, you know, either they don't know what those wounds and those needs are, or they don't feel entitled to meet them directly, and so they turn to food to fill the void. But the problem is food doesn't work. So those needs are still there, those wounds are still there, and they just keep doing the wrong thing, you know, more food, but more of the wrong solution doesn't make it right. And so unfortunately, they get caught in this vicious circle where the needs aren't met, the wounds aren't healed, and so they just keep doing what they're used to doing because we just keep going after the familiar. And so the secret to healing this problem is just to tune in and maybe you'll need some help, you know, maybe you'll need some professional help to find what that is, but to tune in to what your emotional wounds are and what your emotional needs are so that you can start to do your emotional healing and you can start to uh, fill your own emotional needs through things that are meaningful and purposeful for yourself. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a big conversation right now in the, in the health space, like healing your inner child and like going back to those roots. Um, yeah especially, you know, with emotional eating, autoimmune disease, all of these things. And I think a lot of people, like, how do I, how do I heal my inner child? Like, what does that look like? 
Yeah, you know, I would say that they might want to go to my book, Emotional Overeating, because I, I actually walk people through all the steps of discovering the inner child, discovering the adult self, discovering the inner warrior, discovering what the inner critic does. And I go through all the steps of facing your wounds, um, dealing with them, learning how to love and nurture yourself, learning how to silence the critic. So that book is on my website, marciasarotamd.com. So they can go to the book section and find it. It's emotional healing, know the triggers, heal your mind and never diet again. And that, that has everything they need to do all the emotional healing they need, whether they're an overeater, another kind of addict, or just someone who had a difficult childhood. It's I've had lots of patients who don't have any kind of overeating issues read the book, and, and they said that the, the steps for healing and nurturing the inner child were really, really helpful to them. So I, I spent a lot of years writing and editing that book, so I feel like it's a you know, it's a condensed version of, of all the things I talk about. It's a very short book, but it's it's packed with, I think, uh, a lot of tools and, and, and tips for healing and, and uh, self-nurturing. Okay, yeah. Can you give an example of, like, maybe one of the exercises? Sure. There's an exercise where you can get a, an inner child doll. So I say to people, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. You can go to the, you know, uh, thrift shop or some version of that and just got, get a doll and uh, see that doll as the little child that you once were and hold the doll like you would hold a little baby and just start to talk to it and say, you know, I'm here, I love you, I'm, I'm really sorry that you're hurt, um, I'm really sorry that you didn't get what you need, but I'm going to give you what you need, I'm going to take care of you. And you really start working with that child and what it does is that you start to develop this internal connection with that child that you once were and you start to be able to have an impact on it on, on a real emotional, profound level. So that's an exercise I give in, in the book and, uh, and just in, in my practice in general. And a lot of people go, oh, a doll, that's so silly. So, you know, you do a stuffed animal if you don't like a doll. But the person in your mind who's saying it's silly is that inner critic who doesn't want you to do that inner work. So if you can get over that, just silence that critic and say, you know what, this is really helpful to have a tangible, physical child to hold because as you're holding the child you the adult get to be nurturing you the child so it's a great way to kind of split up those two parts of your psyche and your mind yeah i love that awesome well thank you so much for sharing all this information i think this is going to be very helpful for my audience we covered a lot and i i really appreciate it and i know people are going to want more from you so can you just remind us again where they can find um more of your work Sure. So my website is Marcia Sirota, MD, like medical doctor.com. And if you go to that website, you can sign up for my free monthly wellness newsletter. It's called Wisdom Wednesday. It comes out the first Wednesday of every month. And there are always coupons there for my new online courses. You can go to my course page to see what my courses are. Um, there are uh, podcasts on my podcast, podcast page. They can have a listen to all of those. So there's a lot of content blogs and, um, and then also I have a YouTube channel, which you can access as well through my website. So everything starts at my website. So again, MarciaSarotaMD.com. And um, if they're interested in uh, my new online course, they should uh, sign up for the newsletter because there's a coupon for the uh, latest 
online course dealing with difficult people and the one just before that dealing with difficult family members. So you can get about 50% off on those courses if you sign up for the newsletter. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, I think everyone needs to learn more about dealing with difficult people. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, well, thank you again so much. I'll put all the information in the show notes so everyone has access to it. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, it was really a pleasure chatting with you. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you so much to Dr. Marcius for coming on the podcast and sharing all of her knowledge and wisdom. She has so much experience in this field, and I just love to hear about human psychology, how to deal with pressure people, and just make the most of our relationships in our lives. So if you enjoyed this, make sure you share it. You can tag me on Instagram so that I can see you posted and I can say thank you, tag Christ Wellness and tag Wellness Realness Podcast and make sure you head to Dr. Sirota's website that is marciasirotamd.com which will be in the show notes and you can find all of her content there. If you're not already in our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe, I would love to have you there. Just search it on Facebook and press to join and I will add you. Alright, thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and hope you have a great rest of your day. I'll chat with you again next time. Bye.